Father, as your inspired and errant word has now been read to us, we pray for the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit to give us understanding and to give us hearts that are willing to do your word. May you teach us, may you shape us. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. You know, one of the real highlights for me in doing this series on the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation is the opportunity to study the biography of certain principal actors within the Reformation and to have an opportunity to share it with you. This morning, I want to make mention of two. The first was not a reformer himself, but he really was a product of the Reformation. Johann Sebastian Bach. The 18th century German Baroque composer is generally regarded as one of the greatest of all time. He was born in 1685 in a small German town called Eisenach, famous in uh, in Reformation history for being the site of the Wartburg Castle. That's where Martin Luther took refuge after he defied the Pope and he refused to recant his views. It's also the castle where he spent his time translating the Greek New Testament into German. And so needless to say, Bach was raised in a devout Lutheran family. And throughout his career, it's really his reformational convictions that were a primary motivating uh, passion for him. Bach is famously known for inscribing at the bottom of his compositions the initials SDG. And obviously, they they weren't the initials of his name. They stood for Soli Deo Gloria, glory to God alone. You see, Bach wanted everyone who appreciated his musical compositions to know that he wrote it not for his praise, but for God's praise alone. Not for his fame, the fame of his name, but for God's name, God's fame. Not for his glory but for God's glory alone, S-D-G. The other reformational figure who embodied this principle of soli deo gloria is the French reformer John Calvin, who really without any premeditation or, or personal ambition found himself leading the reformation as he pastored the church in Geneva, Switzerland. When In 1538, the Italian Cardinal Jacopo Sadaletto wrote to the city magistrates of Geneva, imploring them to return back to the Roman Catholic Church. Calvin penned a magnificent response in just six days. And it was really this letter that kind of burst him onto the public scene as a leading reformer. And so in this letter, Calvin, he urges Sadaletto to devote his life, as Calvin has, had already committed to do for himself, to, quote, set before man as the prime motive of his existence, zeal to illustrate the glory of God. Illustrating the glory of God. That is, that is a great way to describe Calvin's life and ministry. If Luther is... Uh, uh, foremost known for the phrase justification by faith alone, well then for Calvin, he is most known for the phrase 
the glory of God. That's because his, his deepest passion, his deepest concern, really everything in his theology, in his preaching and writing, it was all filtered through this singular ambition to illustrate the glory of God. Sole Deo Gloria is the most fundamental of the five reformational solas that we've been covering. It's really the glue that holds those other four together. Now, I know the Catholic Church may have never explicitly denied sola deo gloria like they did with sola scriptura or sola fide. But if you think about it, if salvation is to be received by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, then that means there is no meritorious contribution on your part or on that of a priest. So then who gets the final credit for salvation? Who gets the glory? God alone. And, and if scripture is our final authority and not some pope or some magisterial teaching office or, or just church tradition, then that means God. God's wisdom, God's word gets all the glory. And at the age of 30, Calvin tried to picture what he would say to God at the end of his life. And he imagined himself saying to God, quote, the thing at which I chiefly aimed and for which I most diligently labored was that the glory of thy goodness and justice might shine forth conspicuous, that the virtue and blessings of thy Christ might be fully displayed. And 24 years later, at the age of 54, Calvin met his God, and I believe he achieved his great aim. In his last will and testament, he wrote, I have written nothing out of hatred to anyone, but I have always faithfully propounded what I esteem to be for the glory of God. He really just could have written on his tombstone, S-D-G. Well, church, this morning, I, I want to turn your attention to a text that calls God's people to do all things in life, all things in ministry, SDG, for the glory of God alone. Our passage is 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 to 11. But before we get into it, I need to provide you a little background context to our text. The book of 1 Peter essentially describes Jesus' followers with two sobering words. We are described throughout this book as suffering sojourners. Suffering sojourners. We are sojourners, we are pilgrims in this present age, knowing that this is not our home. And the reason why we know that this is not our home is because of the suffering that we receive at the hands of the non-believing world. We're suffering sojourners who are called to persevere, who are urged to be prepared, who are born again to a living hope through the resurrection. Our living hope is that one day Christ will reappear. God will visit us again, and he will call us into his eternal glory in Christ, and he will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us in the kingdom forever. That's what keeps a suffering sojourner from throwing in the towel. That's what keeps us from calling it quits, from giving up the faith, 
That's what keeps us going, knowing that at the end of all things awaits for us a great eternal glory in Christ. And so when we read, when we read in chapter 4, verse 7, that the end of all things is at hand, just realize that that's not supposed to be a foreboding, threatening warning. I know when you hear someone today shouting, the end is near, the end is nigh, well, first of all, you think he's probably crazy, but really, you're thinking, he's trying to scare me. He's threatening me in some sense. But the Peter's original audience, hearing that the end of all things is at hand, would have actually been the most welcome news. It would have been a great relief. Because remember, they were living as strangers in a strange land that viewed their beliefs and their practices to be not only foolish and ignorant, but actually harmful to society. And so they were heavily persecuted. They suffered greatly, suffering for the sake of Christ. And so to be told that the end of all this suffering is at hand is obviously good news to them. Now just to be clear here, when Peter speaks of the end, he's not referring to the end as, as in just focusing on a final cataclysmic act. But rather, when he says the end, he he is talking about really the last stage in a larger process. The the biblical authors really saw the resurrection of Christ as signaling for us the end of all history. And so really, we have been living since the resurrection in the end times. We are living in this last stage of God's larger redemptive plan and purposes. And so the fact that, that the last stage has continued for, over, for almost 2,000 years since Peter wrote verse 7, that doesn't mean that he was mistaken about the timing of Jesus' return and the end of all things. Peter's not making a prediction here in verse 7. You have to realize he's just stating a fact, a fact that remains just as true in 2017. The end of all things is still at hand. And so it's still welcome news to suffering sojourners living today. Thank God, thank God that one day suffering, our suffering, will end. But not only, not only did Peter's audience long to be, to be relieved of their suffering, they also, they also longed to see the glory of God. I, I really consider verse 7 and verse 11 to be connected. If you look there at the text, verse 7 and verse 11 are like two loaves sandwiching the meat of our passage. And and the meat of the passage contains three exhortations for the Christian, and really it's the motivation to live out these three things comes from considering those two loaves, from considering the end and contemplating our chief end. In other words, direct your attention to the end of all things and to the chief end of man. And the chief end of man, according to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Consider the end of all things. Consider your chief end to glorify God. So let me give you uh, the three exhortations that we're going to consider. 
and then we'll go into each one in more detail. So if you want to follow along, look in your bulletin. There's an outline listing these three exhortations. The first one is, in light of the end, both the end of this age and the chief end of man, think clearly for the sake of your prayers. Second, in light of the end, love earnestly for the sake of your unity. And third, in light of the end, serve faithfully for the sake of God's glory. Well, the first exhortation is found in verse 7, so let me read that to you again. Verse 7, the end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And again, I put the exhortation like this, in light of the end, think clearly for the sake of your prayers. Now, you know, I know it sounds odd that in light of the end of all things, that Peter's first command would be, would be a focus on prayer. I mean, you would think that living in light of the end would call for, for some kind of, of radical, extraordinary response. Maybe, you know, for us to, to sell all of our possessions and to give it to the poor or to, to move with our families to some tribal, unreached people group and to share the gospel. If everything we know is coming to an end, then, then we ought to do something huge. And Peter agrees. Peter agrees, and that's why he tells you to be self-controlled and sober-minded so you can better pray. Prayer is huge because huge things happen when we pray, when we pray to a huge and powerful God. But, you know, I understand. I understand that prayer still seems too too ordinary considering the circumstances if we're thinking about the end of all things. But you know, I, I think that's the point. I think that's Peter's point, that living in light of the end of all things should be the Christian's ordinary mindset, and it should lead to the ordinary pursuit of common virtues, self-control, sober-mindedness, and, and to the ordinary fulfillment of daily duties, prayer, when Martin Luther was asked what he would do if the end were to come today, he said he would plant a tree and pay his taxes. What he was trying to get at is the exact same point here. That is, he tried to live every day as if the end would come. And so every day he would pursue whatever appointed task God gave him on that day, no matter how ordinary it might be. So in this case... In verse 7, we are called to pursue self-control and a clear mind, especially in contrast to, to being in a state of drunkenness when you're not sober, when you're neither clear-minded nor in control of yourself. But because, he says, the end is at hand, and according later to chapter 5, verse 8, the enemy is even closer. He's prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour because of this, therefore, think straight. Think clearly. Be in control of your thought life so that you can more clearly perceive how the resurrection of Christ and the coming return of Christ, how those realities ought to reshape your priorities, which will then reshape your prayers. That is what we ought to be thinking about. 
I mean, if you just think about those who, who survived near-death experiences, like maybe a tragic accident or a bout with cancer, these survivors often testify to how they now see things much more clearly in life. When they realize the brevity of life, when they realize that, that every day could be their last, how the end of all things truly is at hand, they begin to reprioritize their lives. And they start praying for different things. Where, where once they prayed primarily for themselves and for their own needs and for their own future, they start praying more often for others, for the needy, for the lost, for the unreached, for God, for God's global glory. That's what tends to happen when you realize that your chief end on earth is to pursue a happiness to pursue a joy that comes not from serving yourself, but from serving others. Not from making a name for yourself, but from exalting God's name, God's glory in your own life and among the nations. I really think that's the connection between verses 7 to 11. Contemplating the end of all things and the chief end of man that sharpens and shapes your priorities, especially when it comes to prayer. And so, friends, ask yourself this. Ask yourself, what do I most commonly pray about? Am I primarily asking God to help with my studies, to help with my work, for physical healing, for safety and protection for myself or for another, for wisdom and direction in face of some big decision that I have to make. Now look, there's, there's nothing wrong with bringing those requests to God. I think he, he wants you to bring those things to him. But how do we connect those things to our chief end in life? How do these requests, how do they advance God's glory in our lives and in the world, I think that's what we need to think clearly about, to think deeply about, to think theologically about. How does a prayer for help at school or for at work advance God's glory and not just my ambitions? How does a prayer for healing advance God's glory and not just my comfort? How does a prayer for wisdom and decision-making advance God's glory and not just my dreams and my concerns? Let's start connecting our prayers with the glory of God. And on top of those prayers that we commonly pray, let's commit ourselves to begin praying for our city, praying for its shalom, praying for, for a spirit-filled revival to take place in our communities. Start praying for the nations. Pray for, for the glory of God to fill the earth, for peoples from every tribe and tongue to worship our great God and to give him the praise that he is due. Let's start praying for these things. Let me just ask you, could, could you, can you inscribe SDG at the end of every single one of your prayers? I think that would be a healthy practice if we started doing that. That would greatly sharpen and reshape our prayer lives. That's the first exhortation I see in this text. The second can be summed up like this. 
In light of the end, love earnestly for the sake of your unity. In light of the end, love earnestly for the sake of your unity. I see this in verses 8 and 9. I'll read that again. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. I think Peter is a good student of human nature. He knows that whenever external pressure and persecution increases for a group of people, internal problems are likely to increase as well. If, if just 10 of you were to reside here in, in this, this room alone, here in this sanctuary, I think you would have a wonderful time with each other because you would have, have so much space, so much freedom in a big room like this. But if we crammed the 10 of you into a broom closet, well, then you're, you're going to be disputing and complaining and biting at each other in due time. When pressures rise... When freedoms are constricted, we tend to turn on each other instead of working together with each other. And so Peter could foresee this happening to the early church. As suffering sojourners, they they were being subjected to a great deal of pressure and persecution from the outside. And so in the next verse, he he calls what they're going through a fiery trial God is putting them through a fiery trial. And as the end draws near, suffering for Christ is going to increase. And so there's this danger that those within the body of Christ will begin to turn on each other. And so Peter exhorts them, above all, to keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Now what does that mean? What does that mean for love to cover a multitude of sins. Well, it, it clearly does not mean that your love for others is going to cover, in a saving sense, the multitude of sins in your own life. No, if, if that were the case, that, that would be a form of salvation by works, in this case, by how loving of a person you can be. And that would be antithetical to the gospel, because the gospel says that the multitude of sins that you have committed in your life and the multitude of sins that you will continue to commit from this point on to the end of your life, those sins can only be covered, they can only be paid for and forgiven by the love of Christ. The love of Christ, who by his love he suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And so if you out there, if you want the multitude of your sins to be covered, if you want the multitude of sins in your life to be forgiven, covered over by the blood of Christ, well, then you have to tell God in your own heart how much you need Jesus and how much you trust in Jesus and his love to cover your sins. So if that's not specifically what he is talking about here, then what does Peter mean for our love for each other to cover a multitude of sins? Well, I think what he's saying here is that the more we earnestly love each other, the more capable we are to overlook a multitude of sins committed against us while we are in community with each other. I think Peter is getting really this idea from the Old Testament. He's getting it from Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12. 
Proverbs 10, 12, there it says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Hatred stirs up strife, love covers all offenses. And there, we're clearly dealing with strife between people who are living in community. Hatred simply fuels that strife. It fuels those self-serving, self-preserving feelings that we naturally have. But when love, Christian love that is gifted by grace, empowered by the Spirit, when that kind of love abounds between us, then our sins are more easily overlooked and forgiven without any need of confrontation. If you always... If you always feel an incessant need to confront others every single time you are offended by something they do or say, or if if you have a very difficult time letting go and overlooking their offenses, well then this verse is what God, I believe, is speaking to you right now. I believe this verse is a word from the Lord to you. And, And knowing knowing that the end of all things is at hand. That offers, if you think about it, a great motivation to take someone's sin against you and to just let it go, to to cover it and not to let it destroy your unity. And how, how does that work? How is that so? Well, just think about it. If you know that the end is at hand, And after that comes judgment, well then you can leave justice, the job of seeking justice, to the just judge of the universe. You can rest in the fact that justice for all sins committed, particularly in this case, we're talking about sins that have been committed against you, you can trust that they will be, justice will be carried out perfectly in every situation. Justice will either fall on the head of the unrepentant sinner come judgment day, or or justice has already fallen on the head of the Savior for those who have repented and trusted in him. Justice will be served. Justice, God's perfect justice, is at hand. And so if that's true, if that's the gospel, then don't let the root of bitterness grow between you and your brothers and sisters in Christ. Since Christ has already covered your sins against Him, you are able to cover their sins against you. You can choose now to break the cycle of always reacting to offenses. You can overlook them. You can move past them. Now, of course, this doesn't mean This doesn't mean that there's never any room for confrontation within the body of Christ. You know, Matthew 18, Jesus says, if your brother or your sister in Christ sins against you, go and and tell him his fault. And he lays out a whole process of confrontation and reconciliation between Christians within the church. So Peter's not saying, and, and I'm not saying, that you should never confront and bring to someone's attention their offense against you. But what we are saying is that gospel love enables you to cover over a vast multitude of those kinds of offenses. You have with you, if you have the love of Christ in you, the ability 
to overlook and to cover over much of the offenses caused against you. Because if the prime motive of your life is the zeal to illustrate the glory of God, well then what better of an illustration than to forgive each other in Christ as he has forgiven you. Probably, I think, the the most powerful demonstration to the world that God is real and God is glorious is when Christians practice forgiveness and maintain their unity. Do you want to illustrate the glory of God in your life? Then love each other and let love cover over a multitude of offenses. Let's consider our third and final exhortation found here in verses 10 to 11. And we put it this way. In light of the end, serve faithfully for the sake of God's glory. Serve faithfully for the sake of God's glory. Let's read it again, verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Now let's stop there and just make a few observations. The word for gift is the word charisma, which literally means a gift of grace. It's referring to what Christians commonly call spiritual gifts. The New Testament teaches that Christ has given gifts through his spirit to all of his people for mutual edification, for the upbuilding of the church, or as Peter puts it in in verse 10, for us to serve one another. Now notice how verse 10 starts with, as each has received a gift. And so that implies there that every believer has at least one spiritual gift, right? As each has received a gift here. So really, if you think about this, that means there's no excuse, right? There's no excuse to not be serving one another. If you are a Christian, and you're not actively serving the body of Christ, don't say it's because you're not gifted enough. If you have the Spirit of God in you, which is what a Christian has, that's what characterizes a Christian, you have the Spirit of God in you, then you have a charisma, you have a gift of grace. And whatever gift you have, it truly has been given to you by grace alone. That means you didn't earn it, It means you didn't manifest it within yourself. You received it by grace. And notice how Peter speaks of God's varied grace, meaning that there are various kinds of spiritual gifts that you may have that the brother sitting next to you doesn't have. Or the sister across from you might have certain gifts that you have not received. That's how grace works. You can't hold it against God. You can't complain to him that that brother has something that you don't have. Because remember, the gifts, they belong to him. And he gives them out as he so graciously chooses. And so your job is to be a good steward of whatever he gives you. To be a good steward of his possessions, using them appropriately to serve each other. Friends, spiritual gifts are not privileges. They are responsibilities. Now let's keep reading about these responsibilities in verse 11. Whoever speaks 
as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. In Paul's letters, he goes on in greater detail identifying these various gifts. But here I think Peter is just giving us two broad categories. He's giving us the broad categories of speaking gifts and serving gifts. Now, under speaking gifts, I think you could include the various things that Paul mentions in his letters, things like teaching, exhortation, or you can call it encouragement, prophecy, tongues, the interpretation of prophecy in tongues. And under the category of serving gifts, you can include things like giving, leading, administrating, mercy, helps, healing, miracles. All of these gifts can be found in in chapters like Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Ephesians chapter 4, and of course here in 1 Peter 4. And at this point, I, I'm, I'm not even getting into the, into the debate about whether all of these gifts are still given to the church today, whether they should all be considered normative in the church. I'm, I'm just making the point that if you are a Christian, you have been gifted by God to serve in some way. And for some of you, it's going to be more through words. For some of you, more through deeds. Maybe some of you have been gifted to serve in both categories. Now, if you're gifted with speaking gifts, then Peter says, speak as if you're speaking oracles of God. Now, what that does not mean is that when I use what I believe God has given me a gift to teach, to preach, when I do that, I, when I preach, I am not speaking new revelation from God. I am not giving you new words from God. I think what this verse is saying is that whenever I preach, whatever I preach, that had better accord with God's revelation that is found for us in sacred scripture. I think that's what it's saying here. And so you really have to ask yourself, when I use my speaking gifts, when I give advice, am I just giving and offering my own wisdom? Am I just sharing my own opinion? Am I just speaking my own words? Because if so, that's not good stewardship. Good stewardship of God's good gifts calls for much more. It calls for you to speak God's words, to be thoroughly biblical in the advice and counsel that you give to other people. Be a good steward by making sure that you are in this word. And so when you speak, when you counsel, when you teach, you are teaching and counseling the very oracles of God. Now, when you're dealing with serving gifts, the point is to serve out of God's strength and not out of your own. And in the New Testament, the word for serve, it's used in reference to particular actions partaken on behalf of other people. I think the most frequent use of the word serve is used in reference to providing a meal for someone. 
So like when Peter's mother-in-law served Jesus and his disciples a meal after he healed her. And there's various other instances of the word serve in connection with offering a meal. Other times, serve is used in reference to visiting someone, particularly visiting people in prison. And other times, it's talking about providing someone financial support. You serve them in that particular way. And those are just a few examples in the New Testament where, where you see that word serve and the context that it's in. But there's various ways that you are able to serve each other out of God's strength. The famous missionary to China, Hudson Taylor, he's known for saying, God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. Now, some would say that's theologically debatable if you are specifically talking about God's supply of, of financial resources. I know, you know, with, with Hudson Taylor, that, that, that was partly what he was referring to. And that's, you can debate that. But I think everyone would agree that the saying holds true when it comes to God's supply of spiritual strength to serve God and to do his will. I think the, the reason why many of us don't know what that's like, I think the reason why many of us don't know what it's like to serve out of that strength that God supplies is because we only tend to volunteer to serve within our areas of competency. If I'm good with children, then I'll volunteer to serve in the children's ministry. If I'm a good speaker, well, then I'll volunteer to share a testimony. If I don't think I'm very relational, if I don't think I'm a, I'm a people person, then I'll avoid people, people ministries, and I'll just serve logistically behind the scenes. Now, I, I agree that there is a wisdom. There is a wisdom in serving out of your strengths. But sometimes, when needs are great, I think we ought to step out of what's familiar step out of what's comfortable, step out of our areas of competency and to serve where we're not as strong so that we are far more desperate for the strength that only God supplies. So ask yourself, what is one area of ministry outside of my natural strengths where God might be calling me to serve totally out of his strength? When we begin to speak depending on God's wisdom and we serve depending on God's strength, then God through Christ receives all the glory. The provider always receives the praise. And so let's serve in such a way and with such an attitude that it is clear to all people where our wisdom comes from, where our strength comes from. May God alone get all the credit. May God alone get all the glory. Father, that is our heart's desire. And we, we confess that too often we are doing things for our own glory, to make a name for ourselves, to receive some credit, some compliment, when it's really all about you. May you receive all glory in our lives. May Christ be exalted when we speak, when we act, when we serve 
in your strength. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Jason, for that message. Let's all rise together.